Hey, I'm Tyler Fenwick, host of the Indiana Lawyer Podcast. And before we get into this week's episode, I want to tell you about the newest podcast from IBJ Media called Off the Record with the Indiana 250. In each episode, IBJ Media CEO Nate Feltman talks with a different leader on the Indiana 250 list of the state's most influential leaders. They discuss their vision for Indiana's future, their experiences in business, and their advice for other aspiring entrepreneurs. New episodes are released on select Thursdays. So go subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. Just search for Indiana 250 Off the Record. Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news and Hoosier law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Tyler Fenwick, Indiana Lawyer Senior Reporter and your host. Today is a special episode of the podcast, our 50th. Thanks for being loyal listeners. For our extended interview this week, I spoke with Ice Miller attorney Freedom Smith. Freedom is co-hosting a CLE about environmental justice next month. We talked about what that means, as well as her personal journey into environmental law. But before we get to that, I'm here in our studio with managing editor Daniel Carson to talk about this week's top legal news. Today is Wednesday, October 18th, and these are your headlines. We'll start with you, Daniel, for some local news here in Indianapolis about comments regarding a judge. What can you tell us? Criticism of a Marion County judge by the Indiana State Police Superintendent prompted a strong response from the Indianapolis Bar Association. Indy Bar defended Marion Superior Judge Jennifer Harrison against inaccurate and reckless comments made by Indiana State Police Superintendent Doug Carter, who criticized the judge for setting bond for a defendant accused of killing three in a high-speed car crash. In an interview with Fox 59 CBS 4, Carter criticized Harrison by name for setting a $1,000 cash bond and a $50,000 surety bond for Luis Leba Gonzalez, who is facing three counts of a level three felony resisting law enforcement resulting in death. Leba Gonzalez is accused of causing the deaths of 21-year-old Michaela Hankins, 14-year-old Christian Leba Gonzalez, and 32-year-old Jose Gonzalez Jr., Specifically criticizing the setting of Bond, Carter said Harrison essentially placed the value of Hankins' life at $330, or one-third of the $1,000 bond. He also said he tried to call Harrison, but she did not take the call. The Bar Association pointed to the state and federal constitutions, as well as the Code of Judicial Conduct in defending the judge. Quote, an evaluation of the probable cause affidavit the defendant's criminal history, and all other appropriate circumstances supports that the bond issued by Judge Harrison in the amount of $50,000 surety plus $1,000 cash was appropriate, part of Indy Barr's statement read. As for Carter's claim that Harrison refused to take his call, the Indy Barr statement said, quote, Superintendent Carter should certainly know that judges cannot have ex parte communications with the superintendent of Indiana State Police in a criminal case where his officers are witnesses in that case or where he personally might be a witness. Section 2.9 of the Indiana Code of Judicial Conduct prohibits such ex parte communication, end quote. Leba Gonzalez is now out on bond until his January jury trial. Thanks, Daniel. Continuing our coverage of the child welfare system, three Department of Child Services employees are facing a federal lawsuit over a four-year-old who was tortured and killed by his parents. The lawsuit is the most recent development in the legal fallout from the child's death. Two of the employees were family caseworkers, 
and the other was the director of the LaPorte County DCS. The lawsuit says the defendants knew about the risk of abuse and neglect for the child, Judah Morgan, but that they performed, quote, sham investigations, end quote, and downplayed concerns. Judah was tortured and killed by his parents in October 2021. The lawsuit says there was already an open child in need of services case related to an older sibling when Judah was born. Judah wasn't allowed to go home with his parents from the hospital when he was born, and he was eventually placed with a relative. But the lawsuit alleges DCS forced Judah's case to a close by cherry-picking information. The lawsuit was filed October 9th in the Indiana Northern District Court. DCS declined to comment. Also on the 9th, the same plaintiff amended a complaint in state court to add Judah's mother and DCS as defendants. That case began as a civil action against Judah's father, but DCS involvement has taken center stage. Before becoming a party to the case, a Hendricks Superior Court judge found the agency in contempt for not being in full compliance with a state court order to produce documents. The judge ordered the department to produce the documents at issue by October 19th. Now let's go back to you, Daniel, because you'd be excused for thinking redistricting is behind us, but that's not so in Anderson. What's happening there? A federal judge has denied a motion to dismiss an electoral redistricting lawsuit that alleges Anderson City Council districts violate constitutional and statutory rights. Judge James Sweeney of the Indiana Southern District Court issued the order October 4th. Common Cause Indiana the Anderson-Madison County NAACP Branch 3058, League of Women Voters of Indiana, and two citizens sued the City of Anderson Common Council for its failure to draw new maps for the city's six single-member districts before the December 31st, 2022 redistricting deadline. The Madison County Board of Elections is also listed as a defendant in the lawsuit. In their lawsuit, the plaintiffs alleged that with the December 2022 deadline for the council to redistrict having passed, a section of Indiana code prohibits the council from redistricting absent a court order, finding the current plan unconstitutional or unlawful. The lawsuit alleges a violation of plaintiffs' rights under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The city argued for dismissal of the motion with prejudice on the grounds that the plaintiffs waited too long to file suit triggering the doctrine of laches. It also argued that candidates for city council seats are required parties without whom the lawsuit cannot proceed. In his order, Sweeney said he could find no electoral redistricting case in which candidates for office have been deemed required or indispensable parties. According to Sweeney, the plaintiffs had, at a minimum, plausibly alleged a malapportionment claim under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. That means the case will continue for now. Thanks, Daniel. Staying in the federal courts, a judge has ruled a Butler University student can proceed with some, but not all, of his breach of contract claims. The student sued the school after he was found not responsible on an allegation of stalking. The student identified 12 university policies that Butler's investigation of the stalking complaint allegedly breached. The Indiana Southern District Court dismissed without prejudice the breach of contract claims he made involving eight of those policies. The court also dismissed without prejudice his unjust enrichment claim. But the court identified four policies in the student's breach claim that satisfied his burden in identifying concrete contractual promises made by the university. That includes the requirement that the Title IX coordinator accommodate the party's schedules for a hearing. Butler has also filed a motion for summary judgment. The court's order notes that, assuming the student files an amended complaint, 
that motion may need to be reworked. And on the state side, the Indiana Supreme Court ordered a new hearing after determining a trial court failed to comply with the juvenile waiver statute before accepting a teenager's admission to auto theft. The teen was detained in 2020 in Lake County after he stole a vehicle and money. The teen's counsel told the trial court that the parties had reached an agreement where he would admit to an auto theft charge and the state would dismiss the theft charge. But the court didn't inform the teen of his constitutional rights or confirm that he waived those rights. More than a year later, the teen filed a motion for relief from judgment asserting that the adjudication should be set aside because his admission was not knowing, intelligent, or voluntary. The trial court denied the motion, but the Court of Appeals of Indiana reversed last year. At issue in the case was whether an informational video about the teen's rights was sufficient to comply with the waiver statute. The state's high court ruled it was not. The Supreme Court ruled the teen is entitled to relief under Trial Rule 60B-8. The court determined that rule is the, quote, proper vehicle for juveniles to collaterally attack an adjudication based on an invalid waiver of rights, end quote. Indiana Chief Justice Loretta Rush wrote the opinion with all justices concurring. Now, one more thing from you, Daniel, this time for an update on a law banning gender transition care for minors. What can you tell us? An Oscar-nominated actor has filed an Amici brief supporting the preliminary injunction ordered by the Indiana Southern District Court against Senate-enrolled Act 480. That law prohibits doctors from performing gender transition procedures on minors. Elliot Page, a Canadian actor known for movies such as Juno and the Umbrella Academy, filed the brief alongside 55 other individuals, all of whom are transgender. Page, who was born female but now lives as a transgender man, has become a prominent figure in the transgender community. In their brief, the Amici argue that the care SEA 480 prohibits is, quote, life-saving, unquote. Quote, some Amici were fortunate enough to be able to begin receiving this care as minors. For the majority, however, the barriers to accessing this care, due fundamentally to discrimination, were insurmountable until adulthood, the brief filed September 27th says. The Amici who received gender-affirming health care as minors describe it as crucial to their well-being and even survival. Many who started care after adolescence suffered as a result of the delay, end quote. Another brief in support of the injunction came from legal and civil rights organizations, including GLAAD, the National Women's Law Center, Family Equality, the Human Rights Campaign Foundation, the National Center for Transgender Equality, the Trevor Project, and the National Center for Lesbian Rights. Those Amici are arguing that SEA 480 is subject to heightened scrutiny because it discriminates based on sex and that the law could not survive that level of scrutiny. Several Amici have also filed briefs supporting SEA 480. The case has not yet been scheduled for oral arguments before the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Thanks, Daniel. You know, for as much as we talk about lawsuits, it was nice to see future litigators take their oaths last week. There were 251 applicants admitted at the October 11th admission ceremony in the Indiana Convention Center. Two applicants were from the February bar exam, and one was a uniform bar exam transfer. It was an especially special day for Indiana Southern District Court Judge Jane Magnus Stenson and Indiana Northern District Court Chief Judge Holly Brady, who each had a child among the admittees. They each gave some advice to the new lawyers, including respecting opposing counsel, colleagues, and clients, and the importance of helping people who can't afford legal counsel. 
Justice Christopher Goff closed the ceremony by telling a story about how he accidentally spilled a pitcher of water on his lap at one of his first trials as a new lawyer. It was an example of a difficult day, and Goff warned the new lawyers they'll have to deal with some of those too. He said he can't go back in time to tell himself it'll be okay, so he passed along the advice to the admittees in front of him. Quote, it's going to be okay, buddy, end quote. And to round out this week's headlines, I'm working on a story for our next print issue about plea agreements. Most criminal convictions in Indiana are secured through guilty pleas, but what happens when the appeal language in a plea deal is ambiguous? The Indiana Supreme Court weighed in on a case where a man argued he was misled about his right to appeal, and justices have been asked to consider other similar cases. You can read that story in our October 25th issue. Okay, that'll do it for headlines this week. As always, if you want more legal news, theindianalawyer.com is the place to go. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear our 50th extended interview. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, I'm joined here in our studio by Ice Miller attorney Freedom Smith. Freedom is a partner in Ice Miller's Environmental Law Group and is co-hosting a CLE event next month about environmental justice. So thanks for joining me today, Freedom. It's my pleasure to be here and glad to talk about this subject. So first, just at a broad level, what is the purpose of this CLE? Um, One is to continue the discussion about environmental justice that has been going on in Indiana over the last couple of years and honestly, globally and make it so that people can understand how it relates to their everyday lives here. Now, I saw you'll be talking about a case, Held v. Montana. And when I Googled that, the first thing that pops up is uh, the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard, calling this a win for young climate advocates. Seems like a big deal. So what's the gist of this case and, and why is it coming up in the CLE? Well, it's a environmental justice case um, in the global sense, um, in that it's a case based on alleged harms resulting from greenhouse gases and potential climate change to people within Montana. Um, so it was a case brought by young people in Montana based on a provision within the Montana Constitution that alleges a right to a clean and healthy environment and challenging actions under the state Environmental Protection Act. So do you have any idea like what the implication could be here? Is that part of what you'll discuss? Um, I think we'll talk about it. I mean, I think uh, MEPA, which is the Environmental Protection Act for Montana, is based on the federal National Environmental Protection Act. So there is some corollary. I think where there's some distinctions is that there's only a few states that have a constitutional right that held in uh, Montana. And the real issue there was, um, do they, well, the legislature had made it so that you couldn't consider climate change or greenhouse gases pretty much at all. Um, And so that was pretty much reversed. Um, So I think there is some implications here in Indiana as to like how that overlap exists and honestly tie into pending civil rights claims against 
Indiana's um, environmental agency. Can you get into that at all? Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, you threw that out there and I, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask a little follow-up there. So environmental justice, what that focuses on will vary based on who you're talking to. In Indiana, it has largely focused on the question of whether the environmental process or the regulatory process is adequately capturing the impact to marginalized other groups uh, like people of color. So last year, coming out of Lake County, so the northern part of the state, um, there was a civil rights complaint filed with EPA's Office of Civil Rights alleging that IDEM, uh, which is our state environmental agency, was not adequately considering the impact on communities of color in its permitting decisions. That was later ruled on by uh, EPA to say that it was premature and their case was closed. But that cause was taken up again in May of this year where another complaint was filed with the help of a NGO um, environmental agency or place to help them bring those claims again. So that is again pending review by EPA. And it sounds like there there's a relationship between civil rights and environmental justice. And is there a is there a direct through line there for you? Yes. So they're actually tied more than people realize. Most of the environmental justice leaders came out of the civil rights movement. And a lot of the civil rights movement had to do with environmental issues. I think people forget today that environmental uh, law is very new. Most of the laws, as we know them, came about in the 1970s or later. And if you look at the civil rights movement, one of the things that they were fighting for was um, representation of marginalized and people of color in governmental decisions and in access. So you will see those leaders coming alongside Cesar Chavez, for instance, uh, when they were doing protests as to agricultural practices for uh, migrant workers and pesticide application. Um, you would see a lot of the civil rights protests actually revolved around landfills and dumping in communities of color. I, I think probably the most symbolic thing that people miss is Martin Luther King was in Memphis to give his I have been to the mountaintop speech in relation to a protest by Memphis sanitation workers with regard to landfill conditions, their working conditions. Um, and it's the day after that speech that he was assassinated. So you mentioned, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think you said this, that environmental justice in the U.S. dates generally back to the 1970s. Environmental law, as we know, it was driven a lot by justice concerns. At that time, we had the Clean Water Act, for instance, the Cuyahoga River in Ohio and other places were catching on fire um, because of the amount of dumping and pollution that was happening. We had Superfund laws, which is like your massive spills releases law was driven by things like Love Canal and then also a site in Kentucky, which was actually the visual site that they used to pass CERCLA or the Superfund Act, which they called it the Valley of the Drums, which was pictures of all of these still containers of disposable waste, bringing it back to a landfill uh, location 
issue and landfill worker issues, which is what at that time in history, a lot of those workers were people of color and a lot of those landfills at that time and in many cases still today were in neighborhoods of color or poor communities. I mentioned the timeline because I'm wondering what environmental justice and environmental laws in the U.S. look like compared to other countries. I think the focus is different. I think in in the United States, environmental law started out started out inherently with a justice component, and that's where our permitting and our regulatory scheme came. We have a super fund or CERCLA because the goal behind that is that the polluters should clean up the pollution that they cause, and not the people who are suffering, you know, adverse health events um, because of something they didn't cause, or the poor shouldn't have to pay for the decisions of the rich when um, they actively went against their decisions. So that was integral in there. Uh, And once those uh, decisions or those regulatory schemes were put in part, there was sort of a divergence within the environmental community with um, a focus going on natural resources like clean parks, beauty access, and those who focus more on like uh, urban community issues. And we saw a little bit of a bifurcation there. Now, are there lawyers, do you think, who get nervous when it comes to something like environmental justice, thinking like it sounds too much like an activist type and that, you know, I was a lawyer, that should not be my role. D- do you ever come across that? Yes. Some of it justified and some of it not justified. What's the difference? Um, I think the reason uh, a lot of lawyers get uncomfortable when the term environmental justice comes up is because the term doesn't mean the same thing to all people. And a lot of the environmental justice movement is not driven by people in the legal field. So a lot of environmental justice issues are broader than environmental law. And there's not necessarily an education as to what the limitations of a specific agency or course of action is. Um, And it all gets swept under there. And I think there's also, if you go to the fringes, there's a, a tendency to get into this oppressor-oppressed discussion, which isn't really, I think, helpful, or really addressing the primary concern of the originators of uh, environmental law or environmental justice, which is fair representation, and having people have a voice in the process, and then also understanding the impacts. You mentioned that the term environmental justice won't mean the same to everybody. Do you have like a working definition for yourself? So I tend to use EPA's definition. And I think that is probably the most broadly used definition taken up by the Civil Rights Commission and others. And EPA has sort of reflected that in all of its policies. So it's the fair treatment of people of all races, income, and cultures with respect to the development implementation and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies, and their meaningful involvement in the decision-making processes of the government. So then a a follow-up to that, what is the legal community's role in seeing that to be true? It varies. I think it's probably the duty of 
people beyond those who call themselves environmental lawyers. But at a minimum, I think it it involves making sure that there is community involvement in decision-making processes that affect communities. I think it also involves a duty to educate communities and organization groups that are acting on behalf of communities as to the basics of the law and what the abilities of agencies are and what they are not, um, because agencies are, are restricted by the laws that are being carried out by them. They can't really go too much further than that. So with environmental justice, you have stuff that would generally be in items purview, but you would have stuff that's really under the purview of the health department and other things, and those all need to be considered together. And, and that can get a little dicey. Traditionally, there has been a, um, a separation of lawyers and most uh, environmental justice movements. Is that part of why maybe uh, like the CLE you're co-hosting is important? Because it sounds like there's maybe like a, um, a baseline education barrier where there's maybe a lack. I keep saying the word maybe because I'm hedging my bet so much yeah. here. But based on what you're saying, I don't know, it just sounds like there might be a, a that educational barrier where you could break through it a little bit with something like your CLE. I, I think that's part of it. I don't want to make it seem like organizers don't have any education because they do. But I think a larger part of it is trying to figure out how we as a state can move forward in addressing this issue while also acknowledging what the inherent limitations are, um, which may not be what anybody likes, but we have to work with what we have to move forward. And how we handle that as a state or as communities may very well be different than other places, because unlike other places, Indiana has a huge manufacturing history uh, and still is a, a big manufacturer, still huge into agriculture. And those things are not the same across states. So I want to take a step back here and ask, how did you get into law school? I did not intend to go to law school. <laughs> Doesn't everybody say that? <laughs> Nobody intended to go to I law mean, school. I mean, there there are people who intended to go to law school. I actually, my degree, uh, or one of them is in biology. So with the focus on ecology. Um, and I thought I was going to get my PhD in biology particularly focusing on impacts on uh, events on endangered species or other ecosystems. And I was on the path to do that. And going into my senior year, my advisor said, I want you to try something different because I had been doing research and work all in that, that direction. And I went to work at an agency in the field with scientists and I got pulled into a lawsuit where a developer had filed two sets of plans <laughs> <laughs> with regard to a conservation district, and it got caught, and their uh, real plans would have cut up the conservation district. Um, and so that got brought to me um, at the time as an intern and the scientist, and I got frustrated when eventually it got taken out of my hands and got relegated to lawyers. and realized that I think my passion for the environment probably and the impact it had on people probably could be better driven on the policy side. 
I apologize. I believe I was thinking of politicians. No politician has ever intended to get into politics. (laughs) (laughs) But it sounds like then your passion for the environment predates your interest in law. Yeah. So before we go, I want to make sure that I have this right. The CLE is Thursday, November 2nd from 4 to 5 p.m. at IU McKinney. It is. And where can somebody go to learn more? Um, They can go to the Indie Bars website, or I believe it's also posted on IU McKinney's School of Law's website as well. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's extended interview. Thank you again for joining me, Freedom. My pleasure. As always, to hear our previous interviews, visit theindianalawyer.com or find us on your favorite podcast app. We'll talk to you next time.